African as part of my genetic makeup. Uh, and so, of course, uh, <laughs> I always can make my, my wife's eyes roll when I just get together with someone and say, hey, you know, I'm from West Africa, too. <laughs> you know, I was talking with Horace uh, uh, Rosemary. You know, he's from Sierra Leone. And I was telling him about this, and we were just trying to figure out these genetic things. But, you know, the thing about that, though, as I share some of the genetic contributions, it, it brings out stuff that, uh, well, you might be ashamed of. For me, it's understanding, well, you know, chances are pretty high that somewhere along the way, uh, family members had slaves uh, and had extra wives uh, with uh, their slaves. And that's something that I know is, no, you don't do that. That is wrong. Uh, but nonetheless, it's part of who I am and my genetic makeup. And so, you know, in the biblical days, when they bring out their uh, genealogy, it was very much a, a way of saying, this is who I am. Uh, so look at my, my genealogy to, to figure out who we are. Uh, and so that's what's going on with the book of Matthew. As we read uh, in chapter 1, we've got this introduction to Jesus Christ and, and doing so by looking at uh, the genealogy, who makes up this one. Uh, and so what's interesting as you read this, uh, and I don't know if you've ever taken the time to seriously read this, but uh, uh, looking at the women, this is a patriarchal society, which means that you go through the man, uh, and why you have women here, it just kind of stands out that there are women recluded. There's five different women uh, mentioned uh, in the genealogy of Jesus, and so these are the mothers of Jesus, and so I want to just take some time to uh, kind of briefly go through, it's going to be somewhat ambitious looking at uh, each one of these women, uh, but to see what can we learn about God and working through uh, to produce Jesus and mankind. And so, uh, with that being said, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. We'll stop at verse 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So there's the first lady. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Benadab, Benadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz. By Rahab, there's the second woman. And Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, and there's the third, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and that's the fourth woman. Um, and then you go on down, you see the fifth woman being, verse 16, uh, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Uh, so we're going to look at those first four women, as the Lord may allow through time. And so I'm going to ask that you be seated as we look at this. We're going to flip through the Bible a little bit as we read in these stories. But the first lady mentioned in the Bible is a lady by the name of Tamar. You find her story in Genesis chapter 38. Uh, Genesis 38. Now I'm not going to read that chapter. Um, in fact, that uh, 
uh, we did not read this when we went through the F-260, uh, and I'm not going to read it because of, uh, well, the ages that we've got, and thereby guarantee that you will read it. Uh, the fact that I'm not going to read it uh, because of the ages, and I know you'll go home and read it now. Uh, so Genesis 38 is this kind of sordid story of Judah and how he had the line come through him. Now, Judah, in Genesis, just prior to this, Genesis 37, he's one of the brothers that uh, lies and deceives Jacob and uh, gets rid of Joseph uh, and sells him off, but brings this favorite coat, this coat of many colors to Jacob and says, Jacob, do you recognize this? Dad, do you recognize this? And of course, I uh, left the conclusions up to Jacob that something happened to Joseph. Well, the next chapter, it's interesting to see what happens with Judah. Uh, in Judah chapter 38, verse 1, or Genesis 38, verse 1, it has the fact that Judah now leaves. He no longer wants to be around Jacob. He no longer wants to be with his brothers. And he goes away and spends some time uh, with this fellow that is a, a Dulamite. Uh, and so he kind of left home. Uh, interesting that when treachery comes in and sin comes in and deceit comes in, he doesn't want to be around his own deceit. He doesn't want to be reminded uh, by his brothers. And, and you just kind of draw some conclusions with the fact that next he leaves home. And then they're leaving home, takes a, uh, a wife to be a Canaanite, uh, of a Canaan, which was, these were not people who worship God has two sons, and the Bible says these men were so wicked, it doesn't go into the details of it, but they were so wicked that they die. God kills them, but not before Jacob, may, or Joseph, Judah, whoo, it's like Jay's, Judah makes sure that there, there is a wife. And so there's Tamar, who comes in, and is the wife of one son, who's so wicked, God kills him. And so as the custom was, the father-in-law had provision to take care of this new lady, Tamar. And so gives the next son uh, to Tamar, as was is the custom, to produce a child. But this man was so wicked, he too is killed off. Interesting, as you read in Genesis 38, Judah's response to this, because now he has to take care of Tamar, uh, and all these sons, these two sons are dead, and so uh, Judah's conclusion is, I tell you what, Tamar, why don't you go back to your daddy's home, live there with him, and the next son, when he's of age, then we will marry you off to him. But the Bible gives this little note that Judah said something to himself. Uh, that he said this out loud publicly to her, but Judah was thinking, you know what? I think she is the cause of my two sons dying. So I'm just going to send her away and let's forget about her. Interesting that Judah has that conclusion. He doesn't look at himself. He doesn't look at his sons. It must be Tamar's fault. And so he just kind of has a plot to put her away. Now, she was probably around... 15 or 16 at this time. That was the custom that as soon as uh, a child was uh, adult level in puberty, then marriage was right away. So this was a young lady. Uh, so the next son was probably maybe 12. So we're thinking about maybe four or five years where she will come back and marry off. But that's not what happened. According to Genesis 38, Judah just forgot about her. Let his son grow up. Married him off to another. 
And so there was a gross injustice that was being done and that he was not taking care of Tamar. Now Tamar kind of takes matters in his own hands. And after Judah's wife dies, Tamar knows who Judah is, that he's predictably immoral, predictably sexually loose. And so she knows that, is aware of that, and sets things up where basically allows her to become pregnant with Judah's child. Now, we would call that incest, right? The Bible calls that incest. But nonetheless, that is what is happening. And Judah gets word of this. Three months later, he finds out what has happened. And so he is going to punish her. And so his punishment, according to Genesis 38, let's burn her alive. Let's kill her by burning. Now, you need to understand there is nowhere in the Bible where it says that is the just punishment for adultery. He has gone over and beyond just punishment. In fact, this is a cruel, very torturous way. Let's torture her, then kill her. Why did he do that? Well, in his thinking, she is the cause of all that's going wrong in his family's life. He's not seeing himself. But the Bible says as she's being taken away, just envision this, she's being drugged away, Tamar reveals something. You see, in this encounter with Judah, she had acquired symbols of power that belonged only to Judah. A seal, a staff, the cords that rep represent his authority. And so as she's being drugged away for punishment, she says, give this message to Judah. I have the belongings that identify the one that's committed adultery. If you can recognize these things, then you can punish him too. And so these things are produced, and Judah sees his own seals. He sees his own cords. He sees his own staff. And Judah's response at that moment is, she is more righteous than me. She is more righteous than me. At this point, you see a confession. That's being done by Judah. What you have in Tamar, as we read this story, is we're going to see how God uses Tamar through the power of confession. Through the power of confession. So when Judah now makes this announcement and he realizes that he is himself to blame, that he is identified with Tamar and the sin that he was ready to burn her for, instead... He provides justice for her. And so, twins are born. One of them, Perez, is through whom Jesus' line will come. But what you see in, in Judah's life, up to this point, he was slowly going away from Jacob. Moved away, but moved away from God, making immoral decisions. It's interesting what happens after you see what happens in Judah's life. The Bible talks about, as we read through Genesis, this amazing story of Joseph and how Joseph is, is uh, brought to Egypt through prison, through unjust claims, yet comes to power and is used by God to save not only Egypt, but the family of Jacob and many people through wisdom. God allows circumstances to come up for Judah and his brothers to come before Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. Judah does not. God allows, through Joseph, tests to be done. 
to see if there's changes in Judah's life. When it's all said and done, Joseph set up an opportunity for Benjamin, Joseph's brother, to be taken, just like Joseph did, away from them. And he's seeing, has Judah's heart changed? Is he still jealous? Is he still filled with anger and resentment? And so when the, the course is there and Joseph is about to say, Benjamin, you're going to be with me forever. You are not going back. It is Judah who steps up and says, Dear ruler, not knowing who it was, take me instead. Let me be the one who sits in prison, but let Benjamin go back. There has been something powerfully done in, in Judah's life that happened at this, seems to happen at this moment of confession in his life, whereby he changes toward the end of his life and becomes the one that says, let me stay instead in prison. Let's rescue Benjamin. And then it is there that Joseph reveals and all the brothers recognize who Joseph is. Some key thoughts in here. Judah was the one who said to Jacob, do you recognize this coat? In deceit. Tamar is the one that says to Judah, do you recognize this seal? And so in do, doing, Judah recognizes himself. And then eventually, he recognized Joseph. Through the power of confession and God's working. And so here's Tamar. God uses her as a mother of Jesus. We keep on reading Rahab. Re read her story in the book of Joshua, chapter 2. We're going to see how God uses Rahab to show the power of trusting. The power of trusting. Now, what's interesting, again, is Rahab, she's a Canaanite woman. She's in Jericho. She's not part of the, the special group of God's people. Yet in Jericho, they are hearing about God's work, how God has used his power to take the Israelites out of Egypt and now crossing the Jordan River. And skies are, our scouts are being sent into Jericho because that's the next place. That's the next city that must be conquered uh, to get into the promised land. But the, sky, the scouts need to hide somewhere. They're, they're about to be found out. And so they come to Rahab, who guessed her profession is prostitute. Also outside the normal moral bounds, right? But yet, this Rahab talks to these scouts and says, I've heard, I've heard about this God. I've heard about the power of this God, that this is the God, not only of Israel, but all of the lands. And I know surely that you will come and destroy Jericho because of the power of your God. And so she's trusting and says, will you just remember me and my family? Would you rescue me and my family? And the scouts assure her of promise and said, look, let us out by the scarlet thread outside of their, their room that was on the wall, outside of the wall, and leave this scarlet rope, the scarlet thread on the wall, and it lets us know who's there. And if you have anyone in your household there, in your room, they will be rescued. And that's exactly how it goes. The Bible says that Rahab had her brothers 
her siblings, her family, all together. And she could imagine what she would have said to them. Oh, there is a God of the heavens. This is the God of the Israelites. And he has assured me through the Israelites that there is a rescue. This whole city will be destroyed. But if you will come, I will trust in this God. I trust in the promises. If you will come into this house, into this room, there is a rescue for the sure destruction that's to come. And as Joshua comes in, the cities are falling, the walls are falling, and he says to the scouts, find Rahab's room, find the wall, find that rope, and rescue them. From the genealogy, we find that Rahab marries one of the Jews, Salmon, who is of the line of Judah. It makes me wonder if he was one of the scouts, I don't know, but nonetheless, she becomes part of the family. Once an outsider, once of the, the Canaanites that would have been destroyed, surely set for destruction. God has said everyone's going to be destroyed here. Even the materials, the animals are to be destroyed. Except for Rahab. Because she trusted. We keep on reading. We go from Tamar that shows how God uses the power of of confession, Ruth, or Rahab, how God uses the power of trusting in him. But then we're going to go to Ruth. We see her story in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. She also is an outsider. She is of what we call the Moabite group. And Ruth chapter 1, uh, we see in verse 8, part of her story with Naomi. Naomi said to her, her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Lord, grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they, left up, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Who, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they left up their voices and wept again. Anorpha kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. I want you to see in Naomi's situation that she was a woman of no hope. She had fled the promised land because of a famine. She's now in Moabite. She's uh, had her sons married off, but both her sons and her husband are all dead. She would have been regarded as cursed if she was just a widow. But now for her to be not only a widow, but her two sons to be dead, she was triply cursed by all who saw that this is a woman that has no hope. You see, in our day and age, you know, you can get by and you can make, uh, make a future with some education, with experience. Back in this situation, it doesn't matter how much education you had, you had to have a family. You had to have children. It was an agrarian society. It meant you had to have uh, these that came. And if you don't have them, then you were a woman of no hope. She was destined to live a destitute life, trying to go from begging to begging. And now these two women are wanting to come with her. And she says, no, my destiny is one of no hope. Go somewhere where there's a chance. But notice 
Verse 14, Ruth clung to her and she said, See, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. What you have here is Ruth converting to follow the God of Israel. And she says, whatever comes your way, I'm taking it with you. If you're begging, I'm begging. If people are going to harm you, they're going to harm me. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Well, there's a lot we're going to fly through. They go back. Naomi says, why don't you just call me bitter? Let, me, let that be my name. From now on, just call me bitter. But they start begging. They start scrounging, working in the fields to see what's left over. Comes across one field by the man of the name of Boaz. Guess whose mom Boaz had? Rahab, the farner, the Canaanite. But Boaz has been blessed by God. He has wealth. He has fields. And he sees Ruth, and he's enchanted by the story of Ruth and what she's doing, and sees her as a good woman and says to her, look, you stay in these fields, you keep gleaning in these fields, and I'm going to send my workers so they don't harm you. Why did he have to say that? Because it was very likely that she would be harmed because she is of the foreign culture that they did not like, Israelites did not like them, saw them as less than, but yet he says, I give you something else, I give you protection. And the Bible goes on to say that uh, in this, that there's this relationship that grows, and so Naomi counsels Ruth how to propose to your husband. Did you ever catch that? Ruth is the one saying, Boaz, will you marry me? Why did he do that? Well, because of the system, he was what was called the kinsman redeemer, closest in the family, one of the closest in the families, whereby had the right to buy back the lands as well as marry Ruth to create an inheritance under the line of Ruth's family, Naomi's family. Boaz works through everything and makes it happen, marries Ruth and creates a family. We see the end of the story in chapter 4. Verse 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This woman that had no hope in Naomi, now through Ruth, God has shown how hope can be born out of hopeless situations. And now who had no child has a child laid upon her lap and becomes the nurse. Hope. The power of of hope, what God is doing. We keep on going down this line. We see about Jesse, Jesse who had David. I wonder 
what if David could have talked with Boaz? I hadn't done the study to see how, if he was still alive. It would be fascinating to see if you could have some chats with them. But David is there, and you can imagine uh, hearing this. If, if you came back and your genealogy report said, oh yeah, David's one of your ancestors, you'd be like, yeah, I'm going to talk about that. And, and so they do, but notice how Matthew brings it up. David's like, yeah, that's great. David, and who had uh, Uriah's wife, who had a son named Solomon. And you think, oh, why do you have to throw that in there? They don't, they don't even name her. Yeah, we know from reading the Bible, this is Bathsheba. But in Matthew, he doesn't ever really call her Bathsheba. He just calls her Uriah's wife. The idea is that you remember a story. You remember a story. And it's a sordid story of, of David. Uh, we see his story in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11 and, and, and chapter 12. But here you see how God used Uriah's wife to show the power of grace. The power of grace. David already has multiple wives. Already has disobeyed the command from Deuteronomy to the kings. He's done it. And now one of his friends, we know Uriah is one of his dear friends. He's one of the valiant men who was with him even when he was running away from King Saul. That banded with him one of the 300 that now has followed him along the way. And so he has been a loyal servant, a loyal friend even before he was king. But evidently has a very beautiful wife. And David falls in love, or in lust at least, with Uriah's wife. And creates all degrees of crime. Sins against God, sins against Uriah, sins against Bathsheba, sins against their family, sins against the kingdom. Covering up, ultimately leading to the death of Uriah. Has a child the child dies. God confronts him in 2 Samuel chapter 12 through Nathan, the prophet. Interesting, tells this little story where David could recognize what's being done and has harsh punishment for someone who, in this story, stole some sheep, a sheep, and says, this man should surely die, which again, was not the just punishment. But then Nathan says, you're that man. He starts to confess. He starts to do like Judah does and recognize himself. But God gives him this miraculous statement. He says, your sin has been removed from you. Now, for committing adultery and murder, death was the sentence. That would have been the just sentence. But yet he says to David, your sin has been removed from you. You shall not die. How can a just God do that? And then we keep on reading. Not only was that case, uh, we read in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12 that he once again has another son with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. His name is Solomon, but God says he can be called Jedediah. We don't name children Jedediah anymore. Uh, but when you look at it, it means to be beloved by God. Beloved by God. How is it that God could forgive David? How is it that he did not remove him from the role of king? How is it that he continued alive and not only that, had a son, which God said, I'm going to grace him and bless him and he will be beloved. It's the power of grace. 
where God gives to us what we do not deserve, grants it to us. And the thing is, none of these, you find one person, one woman, one man that would have been sufficient, would have been right for God to give this gift to. And there would not be found one. The fact of the matter is, everybody that comes into God's family is going to do so by the God's grace and not by our merit. As I look at this story, I think about mothers today. What are some common points of each of these ladies? Each one of these ladies would have been regarded outside of the morally right, acceptable group to be in the temple of God. Every single one of them. Because they were either a Canaanite of that line, a Moabite, incestuous relationship, adultery. And as such, God's word, God's law said, no, not into the holy place. No, you cannot come into the temple, every single one of these women. Yet, God used these women to pronounce and proclaim a way for Jesus to come that will bring all outsiders into the family of God. And he says, it doesn't really matter if there's adultery, if you're incestuous, if, it doesn't, if you're not in the right line, you're not acceptable anymore. It doesn't matter because God's made a way for you to be acceptable through them. I read this story and I think not one single woman lived the life they would have wrote out. All of these things happened to them. I mean, you got a, a rotten father-in-law. You got a rotten husband one after another. After, and then you're, you're settling with a father-in-law and he wants to burn you alive. These things are happening to Tamar. She doesn't get to write the story. But God wrote the story. Rahab. Well, she wrote a story where her whole city is destroyed. She marries some foreigner. God wrote the story. When Ruth wrote the story where she gets brought out of Moab and following some widow that has no hope and destined for, for just begging, she didn't write the story. God wrote the story. When Bathsheba wrote the story where her, her beloved husband gets killed by the king and she's forced or not, we don't know entirely, into this relationship with the king. She didn't write the story. God did. Mothers, you don't get to write the story. God does. God does. But you see also in this story, this exchanging that takes place. Tamar exchanges her life with Judah and Judah She's willing to say, burn me alive, but let it be at Judah's hand. And Judah says, I'm in your place with you. Rahab, she trades shelter, a wall, a city to live in tents. Because it's better to be in the tent following the God of heaven and earth. Than live in a wall and a city with your own idols. Ruth, she's exchanged her father's land, the safety of her family, the sure provision, and exchanging it for being destitute with Naomi. Because it's better to be a destitute in God's land serving God than to be in her home with her family serving idols. 
See this one after the other. Mothers, here's the great word for you. You don't have to be perfect. Right? Not one of these. It's not that they're just, you know, a little bit off. They're really off. Every single one of these are really off. But it doesn't exclude them from being used by God. But they've got to be willing to let God write the story. You don't get to write the story. God does it. But they live in exchange. In exchange for their comforts and what they want. In trusting and surrendering to God. Happy Mother's Day. God can use you regardless where you come from. And what great things can be done. Each one of these women reveals something, don't they? The power of grace, the power of hope, the power of trust, the power of confession. What will your life teach? When a child or someone that's been forced and formed by you and shaped by you in some form, will they look at you and say, this woman is the power of what? Let God write that story, but let it be a story to give to those who come behind you. Let's pray.